Welcome to Create New Futures, a show about thought-provoking ideas and practices you can use to create and shape your future in life and in business. Join Aviv Shahar, author and innovation strategy consultant, as he shares his proven strategies that have helped clients create breakthrough results. Aviv has guided executives at Fortune 100 companies, and now he wants to help you. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful leaders and entrepreneurs to explore how you can create new futures for you and for your organization. This is a V event. Today, I'm speaking with Ashley Reichelt, a principal at Deloitte Digital, and Amelia Dunlop, Chief Experience Officer at Deloitte Digital. Their research is codified in the new book, The Four Factors of Trust, how organizations can earn lifelong loyalty, where they offer practical guidance to measure and build trust in the relationships that matter most by cultivating humanity, capability, transparency, and reliability. Naturally, we want to reflect on these ideas and learn from their experience. Ashley, Emilia, it's good to have you here. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Excited to be here. Yep, good to see you. So let me begin by asking you first, of all the things you do at work, what do you enjoy most? What makes you most alive? Well, I can tackle that one first. You know, as a consultant, I get to do two things that I don't think you get to do in every job all the time. And one is you're constantly barraged with new problems, new industries, new clients, new everything to tackle, which is exciting because it keeps you on your toes. And I think secondarily, you also have the opportunity to continue to teach and grow teams over the course of your career. So you're equal parts kind of professor problem solver, which I really, really love. I like that, Ashley. So yeah, I'll jump in and say that I often do a lot of recruiting for my undergrad and I give what I refer to as the love speech, which is as you think about setting out on a career, you should find a job you could just possibly love. And for me, what I love about my job is that I'm an ideas person. So I love that we're going to have a conversation today about ideas and how they can impact the world. I love working with other kind of people and the teams with my partner, like Ashley. And then I love trying to tackle stuff, tough problems. And I think that these are the types of things I get to do every day. And I particularly love being able to bring ideas out into the world, like we did just writing a book together. So let me just stay with, Emilia, with what you were describing there in terms of the next generations that are coming into the workforce and your dialogue and conversations with them. Number one, what do you find most prime as they inquire into shaping their careers? And what are the one or two key ideas that you find that you need to communicate to stimulate their thinking about shaping their career? Well, it's a great question. I mean, we do know that about 36% of the global workforce right now is Generation Z, right? So they're entering the workforce at a time when they probably finished college and started their new jobs entirely virtually, which is an experience that I'm pretty sure none of the three of us had had when we started work. And so I'm so mindful of that. And so one of the things that we've done as an extension of our research and trust is research specifically in with Generation Z. And the thing that really struck me in that is the thing that Gen Z's rate as the second most important trait that they value at work is empathy. 
And what I thought was interesting about that is when we also asked the same question to their bosses, rated it about you know fourth or fifth. And so we saw this as a bit of a gap and realizing that. So to your question, what I think a lot about with our younger generation in particular is how are we as leaders showing up and demonstrating empathy, which is very much related to what we talk about as one of the four factors of trust around humanity. What would you add to this, Ashley, from your experience? Well, I'm sure we're going to get into this in more detail, but one of the things that we've noticed about the younger generation is that they trust less. So particularly in early in your career, when you have less agency, when your expectations haven't been set yet, you haven't built that trust. And so we have work to do to help people entering the workforce trust employers more. So what is your working hypothesis? Why do they trust less? Question one and question two still to stay with Amelia about the point of empathy. How do they define empathy and what is it that they're actually looking for when they say that they look for empathy from their employer? Oh my goodness, that's like three questions. (laughs) Okay, Ash, do you want to start? Well, let's start by breaking down what we mean about trust so that we're all using the same language, at least have a similar understanding. And that is that we trusted in this core is built when you make and keep good promises. And we describe the ability to make good promises as having high humanity and transparency and the ability to keep those promises we define as capability and reliability. Those are the four factors of trust. And together, they describe not only most of the variation we see in trust scores, they also describe behavior as an outcome. And we find that when customers and employees trust either the brand that they're buying from or the employer that they're working for, it greatly drives behavior. So on the customer side, this means that they buy from you all the time. In fact, many of them will be loyal. On the workforce side, this means that they are significantly more motivated to work. They have longer tenure, higher satisfaction. So that is how we define trust. And in particular, this notion of empathy for Gen Z, for us, sits in the humanity factor. And what's particularly interesting about that point is that's actually where most companies fall down a little bit. Companies tend to be higher on capability and reliability and a little lower on transparency and humanity. So there's a disconnect between what people are looking for and what companies are delivering on. So I'm looking for a definition that you use the word humanity. How do you define humanity? So our definition for humanity is that the brand or organization demonstrates empathy and kindness and treats everyone fairly. Okay. And what are the ways to measure? Because what you've developed is a measuring tool. How do you measure humanity? Sure. What we ultimately had set out to do was to find a more meaningful and actionable way for organizations to go build trust. And to do that, you have to be able to measure it. So humanity, transparency, capability, reliability are the four factors that we found in our research. And each of those are underpinned by a set of attributes that companies can measure to understand where they might be building trust or eroding trust. So for example, under humanity on the employee side, we tend to look at things like, to what extent does your employer care about your well-being? Do they value and treat workers with respect? Do they treat everyone fairly? Are you engaged by the culture? So the research itself has broken down not just what drives trust, but also underneath that, what are the different actions you can as an employer take in order to go build trust? Well, and just to jump in to your question about like, well, how do you actually go about doing that and how might you measure it? So what Ashley and I did is the four factors of trust are free, right? There's available sort of a set of questions that any leader can use immediately for their organization to measure trust with their employees. They can measure trust with their customers and just start measuring it. 
and see what your baseline is, see how you compare to different populations, different kind of other companies in your industry, and start to understand what you can be doing specifically to kind of move the needle on those factors of trust. You say somewhere earlier in your book that humanity leads to or begins with recognizing that we are all first of all humans. How is this awareness and insight shaping the kind of conversations that you are developing with clients about trust? So I could take this one. So Ashley and I were part of a leadership team a number of years ago that set this aspiration to elevate the human experience. And at the time, we knew it was a bit lofty, but we wanted to make it mean something in our organization and our practice because we knew that there was something bigger than just you know showing up as a customer or showing up as an employee that we didn't wake up this morning, right? As either a customer or as an employee, we wake up as humans. And so that's been a fundamental part of kind of how we do the work and really using you know, human-centered design in almost everything that we do. So this is why humanity has been such an important part of our practice. And this investigation that into trust is really because you can't elevate anyone's experience if they don't trust you. When Ashley and I had these conversations, it really is about the type of world that we want to be a part of, the type of organizations we want to help shape. Yeah. And just add a point on that. Trust is a human emotion and it is an emotion. And what's been fascinating for us as we explored it is to see that the four factors themselves remain consistent. How you earn trust as an employer versus as an organization selling a brand versus anything else is the same because trust is human. So if you really want to build trust, you have to understand that people are human first. So getting back for a minute to Gen Z, what is the research revealing, would you say that they are fundamentally different in the way they are wired about their response to these inquiries? Do they have a different trust algorithm in their mind? What are you discovering about Gen Z? They are the future, so we ought to be studying what is occurring with them. Let me start on this. What I would say is I don't think that how you build trust with Gen Z is different than how you build trust with any other generation. Trust is trust. It is that human emotion. And so you build it the same way you do with everybody else. You make and you keep those good promises. I think what we need to recognize about Gen Z is as newer members of the workforce, they do have less experience. So less of a point of view about what it is they should be expecting. This is really important because if you don't hit somebody's expectations, you miss building trust. Anytime you miss expectations, it's an opportunity to lose trust. And that could be because somebody didn't have the right expectations or it could be because we didn't set those expectations well. Similarly, the other thing that's important to note about being a younger employee is you don't have nearly as much agency as you do when you get more senior, more tenured. The reason agency is important is because you can start to influence outcomes. Of course, it's easier to trust the things that we're in control of, and those are both super relevant for Gen Z being new to the workforce. And are you proposing that there is a mismatch between how they expect and desires in terms of agency and their early experience in workforce where the conflict arises? I can't imagine that there's not some level of disconnect because we see that replicated in trust scores and younger generations do trust less than older generations. So certainly that is likely to be a piece of it. But let me bring that to life with a little bit of a story. So pretend you're a flyer 
and this is the first time you've ever flown, you're in the middle of your flight and all of a sudden you hit major turbulence, your reaction is probably going to be to hold onto the seat for dear life because you don't know what to expect. Is the plane going down? Is this normal? Meanwhile, the person sitting next to you who's flown a dozen times over the course of this month has been through turbulence before. They're not particularly worried about it because they understand that everything's going to be fine. They just want to be sure that you're not going to spill your coffee on their laptop as they continue to work their way through this turbulence. So expectations aren't necessarily self-set. Sometimes they're set by the person you're working with. And sometimes it's just a matter of getting enough experience in order to have an understanding of what is likely to happen. Emilia, anything you want to build on this? Sure. I mean, when I think about Generation Z, I also think it's important to isolate the difference between when all of us were 18 to 24, right, versus what's specific to this generation. You know, I am not a member of Gen Z, so I wouldn't consider myself an expert. But as I've been working with members of Gen Z on this research, there are some very defining characteristics, right? So this is the first generation to come of age with social media, where they have always had a voice that has always been amplified and their ability to kind of have their voice heard. And now that expectation is translating to when they show up at work. Right. Where I think that's one of those things that is distinguishing about the generation. Also, obviously, the pandemic and the kind of the virtual work first environment. It's one of those things where as leaders, I do think about what deficit we're building in the next couple of years, where if our junior kind of team members haven't had some of the in-person work experiences that we've had, if they haven't connected with leaders and with each other which is why I think it's so important to kind of bring it back to trust and to actually be intentional about how do we build it with this particular generation so that we don't find ourselves with a deficit in our organizations going forward. What are you discovering about leaders that are able to cultivate effectively trustful, trust-based leadership teams? You want me to take that one first? Okay. So um, Ashley and I talk about this a lot because one of the reasons that we really spent so much time working together on this topic and I'm writing this book is we just both care so passionately about it. And the fact that we wanted something that we could use ourselves. We wanted something that we could use with our teams, we could use with each other, and obviously with our clients. And so for us, it does come down to the fact that it connects to a personal leadership philosophies. So for me, that one's very much around humanity and this and the whole idea of the human experience and how we show up and sort of humanize ourselves as humanizing leaders with vulnerability, with authenticity. Because I like to think the fact that we as humans are wired to kind of sense when someone's being inauthentic. And so how do we as leaders show up to be more human in ourselves? And Ashley has a cool story too about her own personal leadership philosophy. Well, my leadership philosophy mirrors are four factors of trust. And just like everything else, I think one of the things a lot of people get wrong is this notion of transparency. My partner's Dutch and had the privilege of living in Holland for the better part of a decade. And the Dutch have a word called bespreekbaarheid, which basically means if something can be talked about, you should talk about it. That's really important because if you really want to inspire and motivate your team, they have to understand what it is you're trying to get them to do and why, and you need to be able to have all the information required to be able to do your job effectively. And this is one of the things that's a really hard thing for organizations to balance. Information is vulnerability to some degree, and you build trust in moments of vulnerability. So as an organization, being transparent, delivering relevant transparency is a critical way of building trust. So when you work with leaders, what is the coaching advisory brief that you offer to help them cultivate these behaviors and characteristics? Well, the first thing we do is to help people understand why trust 
everybody intuitively understands that trust is important. And never once have we sat in a conversation with the leader who said, oh, I don't believe you. Trust doesn't matter. Of course it does. We all understand that. I think what's missed though are probably a couple of things. First is the extent to which it does drive behavior. Trust drives the outcomes you're looking for, full stop. It generates motivation, generates desire to work. It generates all the things that you're looking for as a leader. So helping people to quantify that is important. And then the second thing we tend to do is to say, Now that we all agree on what it can deliver, we want you to understand what the gap is because most employees don't trust their employer, about half actually, and employees overestimate their employees' trust scores by about 40%. So there's a significant gap in between how trusted I think I am as a manager versus how trusted I actually am. Once we're on the same page on those two topics, we can dig into what are the things that you can do better as a leader or as an organization in order to build trust. And that's where the four factors come in. So a lot of your research was generated inside the professional arena in the context of your work. What's the insight about how these factors transferable to other spaces that are very important for the human experience and are outside of the professional arena? Relationship with people other than in the work environment, for example. Well, I think one of the things that we do know is that trust has been declining in the United States, at least for the past 40 years. So we know the fact that trust is critical across so many institutions, right? So it's been, whether it's in government institutions, medical institutions, religious institutions, so it's not just an important topic in the business world, but it is one that you know expands across so many different dimensions. I think Ashley and I would agree that we believe that trust is transferable, right? So that what we can do to learn to build trust as leaders We can also use those skills in other arenas, but the focus of our research has really been on kind of businesses and governments, agencies, and how they can use the four factors to build trust. Well, one of the provocative challenges to the paradigm of humanity and that we are all humans is the recognition that over the last 60 or 80 years, we've viewed humans more as consumers and employees rather than humans. We are seeing each other and including your tool, is it will largely be used in the corporate space in the context of how can we become more productive in the work environment, how can we build more successful teams. I appreciate that because I've had a successful experience doing that myself over the last two decades. There is an obvious challenge in reclaiming our humanness and our humanity and in recognizing that we are humans before we are consumers, we are loyal to people before we are loyal to brands. So that's for me the bigger inquiry of how do we reclaim our humanness in the biggest sense of the idea. Yeah, well, I would take that one step further and, and say that organizations who are thinking about the customer and the workforce, they're probably already kind of invested in that experience. You know, I worry about those ones that they still refer to people as users or participants or FTEs and the ways that we're sort of, we dehumanized the people in our organizations and the people that we tend to serve. And it's also been really fascinating to see the rise of the need for a focus on or sort of refocus on the human experience that really runs in parallel to the absolute explosion of growth in technology and artificial intelligence and data and how they kind of, the trend goes together. It's as we sort of start to use more and more technology at scale, what do we have to do to make sure that that technology is serving a human end? 
I would also point out that I think the corporations are rapidly changing. If you look back 10, 20 years ago, the primary delivery for a board for a CEO was shareholder value. And I think over the last decade in particular, you've seen a real shift from having one stakeholder, which is just your shareholders or the people that you're trying to earn wealth for, to many different stakeholders, your customers, your workforce, the environment, regulators. It's no longer just a single-minded mission. And that's really, really important because I think it sparks the recognition that humans are made up of organizations and they're serving humans themselves. So to bring a bit of your own personal, each one of your experience, what's an earlier experience in either informative years or early in your career that got you interested in this inquiry in the first place? I love this question. So Amelia, maybe I'll dive in and then let you jump in. There are a couple in my growing up that have really influenced me, whether that was running my own Christmas tree farm, which was often based on the honor system and people having to leave money without anybody checking that they're leaving money to things like my uncle writing a book on loyalty at the same time that the owner of the Browns stole our team and took the team to another city all the way through to what it's like in your adult life to experience things that don't really seem fair, like, you know, not being able to live in my country growing up or having to adopt my own children. All of those experiences shift how you feel about trust, what it means to you and how important it is to have it. Yeah. And I love those stories, Ashley. And I think for me, When I look back, I've always been fascinated and studied whether it's sociology, psychology, philosophy, and theology. And it's always around central questions of meaning and purpose. And so I think that has very much paved the road that I'm on now as we think about what does it mean to show up with meaning and purpose with our humanity and how do we use trust to build that? So let's ask the bigger question about leadership and leadership trends where trust is obviously an important factor. What are the big challenges that you see leaders struggle with at this time? Gosh, where to start? I mean, there's so many things that you have to balance as a leader right now. It's hard to pick one. But I think one of the things that the world is facing right now is the gender imbalance that exists at work and how companies need to be more thoughtful about proactively keeping and building more diverse workforces whether that's people of color or women, we have a world that's a little bit stilted right now that needs to be rebalanced. Yeah, totally agree with that one, Ashley. And then I would add to it the challenges that leaders are all facing with how do they grapple with sustainability and how do they show up in their own organizations authentically and the reporting demands that are placed on them, but then also how do they verify that any of these indicators and any of these different measures of different sustainability outcomes are really trustworthy. So I think there's a lot of challenges that leaders have now to figure out how to measure as well as take action on sustainability. If we ask about the trends of the last century, the last even 60 years, clearly women in leadership has been one of the most transformative changes. And still, some would say that we're only halfway or not halfway on this journey. So I'm interested in your comment. Where are we in the evolution of women in leadership? How is this trend evolving? And what are the frontiers that you see specifically today with women in leadership? Well, I think it's interesting that you cite that some people might think we're only halfway there. I mean, one of the things that I think about is that the Equal Pay Act is only about five decades old. And so then you can be like, wait a second, like that's not that long ago. 
when you consider that you know the idea that people who did the same job perform the same function should be compensated the same. And so I think it's acknowledging that that's still in living memory of many people who run organizations that we do still have a long way to go. And we know that you know in our trust research. So Ash, do you want to share what we found? Well, I think it's pretty easy. Women trust less than men. And there are a lot of good reasons for that. In fact, what's fascinating to us is that women actually start out trusting more than men in the beginning. And it's when you get a little bit of experience that you lose that trust, which suggests that it's our lived experience that really drives down trust levels. It has nothing to do with our biology or how we're raised, but how we experience life. And that's really, really important. On the consumer side of things, many companies are still designing products for men and then maybe changing them a little bit, shrinking them, pinking them in order to get to their female audiences. So we're not really starting with women at the centerpiece for how to design and create experiences and products. We're kind of using it still as an afterthought. And the industry I love to pick on incidentally for this is automotive. Automotive companies today, as far as I know, are still using average sized male test dummies to test cars for safety. And the result of that is that women and children are substantially more likely to be injured or die in a car accident. So one of the things that we use every day, there are just as many drivers who are female as male, isn't designed for women. And that causes massive outcomes that are negative. When you talk to women earlier in their career and you advise and brief them about how to shape their professional journey such that they can embark on leadership opportunities. What is the advice that you offer? You know, I'm going to tell you that my advice is shifting. So earlier in my career, I remember having long conversations with women about the balancing act of how to be women in a nearly all male environment. And there was a wonderful article that came out at the time that talked about the fact that women have to walk a narrow alley in being strong at work. You can't be on this two side of the scale of being emotional because then you're hysterical. Whereas a man who's emotional is really thought of as being in touch with his feelings. So it's a good thing. On the opposite end of the scale, if you have somebody who's banging the table and very aggressive about something, again, for a woman, that translates to being hysterical. <laughs> for a guy, the thought is that you're very passionate. So women had a smaller corridor of behaviors that they could actually demonstrate or display and still be thought of as successful and not too emotional or hysterical. My very hope these days is that gradually going away as we understand that there are different ways or different paths to success. There are lots of different things that women and men can bring to the table. And by looking at that diversity and enjoying that diversity, we can actually create more successful environments and paths for ourselves. Yeah, I really like that, Ashley. It's interesting. I think my own sort of advice has also evolved over the years. I found myself with younger women reminding them to trust their own voice because we know from research and my first book that women are more likely to be spoken over than men and that this doesn't drop for women until about age 50. And so there's something about trusting your own voice and being able to kind of cultivate what your own voice is like. But I've also, that's evolved for me as well in that I realized the reason that we doubt our own voice is that at times we can feel less worthy, right? And it's because there's external indicators, you know, the fact that women are still paid less than men. There's lots of reasons why when women show up at work, they feel less worthy. And so I had a conversation this very day, this morning, actually, with, with a great friend of mine. And it really did center on the fact that she just needed to learn how to feel like she was worthy of all of the responsibilities and all of the accomplishments that she had. She still felt unworthy when she showed up at work. It makes me so sad because the truth is it hasn't really changed all that much. 
there was a study done about the Supreme Court in a recent couple of years, maybe three or four ago, and it found that the male judges interrupted their female colleagues three times more often than they interrupted each other. So it's still the basic way we're interacting with each other is not equitable. So there's a reason she might feel like her voice is lost. It probably is lost a little. So it comes back to self-esteem, self-worth, and those foundational sense of self as a mature, confident adult that you need to advise and coach. If you try to translate those insights to either the behavioral advisory or character virtual development advisory to women to succeed in leadership in a world that's going through transformation, what are the other advice, the other coaching brief that you offer, both in terms of the behaviors that you'd encourage to focus on and the sense of the virtues, the character traits that you highlight? I would go back to, I really do think they're the same. You want to be transparent. You want to be human and treat your teams with empathy and kindness. You want to be capable. You want to be able to be capable all the time, not just some of the time, so reliable. Those factors really do drive and should drive behaviors of good leaders. I think what I would push though, is that we have to recognize that the playing field is still not equal. And that shows in how we're treated and as well as what our own beliefs are. So if I take trust as an example, women trust around 88% as much as men. Now that changes dramatically when you introduce other things. So for example, when you introduce performance-based compensation, that trust gap grows by 500%. So women trust 500% less than men. And the reason that is, is probably reasonable. It's because that system hasn't worked for us in the past. We are still paid 87 cents or is it 82 cents on the dollar? There's a massive gap. So, you know, we're smart enough to realize that that playing field is not level. And therefore, when those criteria exist, we're a little bit more dubious. And I love that you said that, Ashley, because yes, I think there is the growth journey that I think many women need to go on in and of themselves, right? As we were just talking about that sort of voice in your head that might make you feel like you're less or not worthy. But to Ashley's point, there's systemic challenges and systemic barriers that I do think we need to use all of our collective energies to kind of redesign those systems. I often like to say that it's not about leaning into that system. It's about redesigning it. I did catch the subliminal message about the leaning into. This is a clear message that the lean in message was not necessarily always helpful for women. Did I hear that correctly? I just think that leaning in can imply that the issue or the problem is with the individual. And I think what you've heard pretty clearly from Ashley and myself is, yes, there's a journey that we as individuals need to go on, but there are also systemic changes that we need to use our collective leadership and power to be able to help change, to create more equitable outcomes for others. And to some degree, that means turning the tables, right? So as an example, I was recently in a business leaders council of women, and we were talking about the rates at which women and men get venture funding. And of course, men are funded significantly more often. It turns out men are also asked different questions. So whereas we might ask a man how we could grow faster or further, what is the growth potential of your business? We actually tend to ask women about risk. What are the risks you're going to address? So if you want to be successful in getting venture funding as a woman, you got to retrain that question, answer the risk question, but then also add on to it the growth opportunity. It might not be asked of you, but you need to create a more level playing field by answering it anyway. You spoke about systemic change. What are the other systemic changes that you envision 
playing out in the coming decade to enable the kind of transformation that you are imagining? I think one of the things that is so necessary is you need to be able to see leadership who looks like you in order to feel like you actually belong and can thrive in an organization. And I think that's very much the case for women, but that's also the case for so many different intersecting identities. And so I don't think this is necessarily specifically a women's issue, but as we think about the future of organizations, the future of leadership, I think it will be so important to have much more representation of a diversity of leaders at the kind of the C-suite. Arguably, I'd say it's even a fiduciary responsibility. Companies with more female board members perform better. Venture funds with more female entrepreneurs perform better. Even at the core of what it is we're supposed to deliver as business people, make more money, be more profitable. All of those things relate to who is part of our team. So frankly, it's something we all have to lean into. If your message and body of work is highly successful, and we are speaking in 10 years' time, and you reflect back some of the major trends that you helped catalyze, what would you be highlighting in this future imaginary conversation? Well, I think looking at Ashley, one of the things I think we both aspire to is that trust would become something that is measured in every organization, right? In the same way that loyalty is measured today, that trust would become one of those things that boardrooms, that management teams really talked about and used to kind of self-report in their own kind of annual reporting. That would be an indicator, right? That I think looking back, I think Ashley and I would be very proud. But I think beyond that indicator, I think it would be about the type of dialogue, the type of change that we would see in the workplace, but also with customers as well as partners where it felt like organizations existed to serve some human benefit, right? And that human benefit extended into the kind of the human impact in the world. So that just a reminder, a recalibration of why these organizations exist. I think that's really well said. I would love to see it on every annual report that comes out. In fact, if we could fast forward even further, I'd love to see it as one of the key metrics that shareholders evaluate when they think about where they want to put their money, because it's an indication of both the company's ability to create value, but also of where their human element lies. And finally, Emilia, you spoke earlier about the drive for meaning and purpose. Where do you place in your map of meaning the relationship of these ideas, purpose and meaning and trust in relation to that? So if I understand the question is, how do I connect the need for meaning and purpose to this discipline and inquiry around trust? Interesting. I have to think about that. I mean, I think the way that I've made sense of it is I've observed that in the workplace and the the discipline and profession I've been in for the last 20 plus years, we've seen the rise of the desire to focus on purpose, to focus on burnout or well-being or inclusion or belonging and any of these issues that we've seen sort of teams kind of start to organize around, which for me are just fundamental issues about what it means to be human and to be seen as worthy and loved and acknowledged with respect, whether in the workplace or anywhere, to be honest. And so I think that's why for me, I've come to this place of it's about the human experience, because you know we could talk specifically about burnout, or we could talk specifically about our DE&I numbers. But I think it's important for us to think about the, the broader human experience. And so then the connection is obvious and easy, right? It's the fact that we're not going to do anything to elevate different identities, lived experiences, if we're not very intentionally building their trust. I think that was well said. I think we're watching organizations shift in the stakeholders that they're 
paying attention to who gets a voice and what they're all in the boat trying to do together. Purpose is going to increase in value or over time, I think. So that's a central, critically important driver. One of the ways I internalize um, what you are both offering there is that, well, the first person we each have to trust first is ourselves. If I don't trust myself, if I don't trust my own capacity to get centered, to lead authentically with my purpose, then I am less likely to trust anybody else. And even if I do, it's short term because we first experience the world through ourselves. So that for me is the space where the sense of living on purpose and living a life that generates meaning and connection. Sounds easy though, but it's actually really, really hard. And the reason I say it's really hard is because your lived experience and your identity intersect. So if you think about your trust scores, they're greatly influenced by your lived experience. Uh, Let me put a finer point on that. So your identity, who you are, your race, your origin, for example, weren't actually the drivers of trust in our data set. Instead, it was lived identity or lived experience. And the reason that's so important is because those things shape your ability to create outcomes. So the story I like to tell is we lived abroad because my partner's marriage license, our marriage license wasn't accepted in the US until DOMA fell. When it finally was accepted, we were able to finally live in the country and we decided to have kids. And then we live in Boston. Both of us are on the birth certificate. However, my parents in Ohio and my daughter's a type one diabetic. So if we were to visit Ohio and she ended up in the hospital, we learned that even though we're both on the birth certificate, we're not both used parents. And so my partner wouldn't be able to see her in the hospital. Therefore, to safely visit Ohio, we had to adopt our own children. Now, that has nothing to do with my identity. It has nothing to do with being gay, but my experience as a gay person absolutely gets shifted by that. And so living our purpose, so to speak, is not always as easy as it sounds because our experience and path to achieving that purpose is really different and shaped by the experiences we have, which of course are shaped by our identity. What else important in the research that we have not touched yet on this conversation that you want to share that would be important to appreciate the kind of framework and trust know-how you are bringing through this work and through this book? Well, I'd say there's two things. One is that obviously, hopefully we've conveyed to you and your listeners the importance of trust and why as leaders we can use it in our own practices and why it's so important to do so. But I think the other thing that um, Ashley and I are very excited about is that trust and particularly the four factors of trust are predictive of behavior. That's ultimately what we care about in organizations. And so we know that these four factors together predict 74% of behaviors accurately. And so I think that's one thing that's really important. And then ultimately, the other piece of research we did was to see how those behaviors then kind of add up to kind of the outcomes from sort of a shareholder returns perspective. And that's where we learned that those organizations that really outperform their peers when it comes to the four factors of trust are other ones that deliver kind of like 400% more kind of shareholder returns. Yep, up to 400%. In closing, what any other parting message would you offer to people listening to Create New Futures? Measure trust. (laughs) Start by measuring trust. The four factors are up there for consumption. They're open source. They are easy to use and actionable. We encourage everybody to start there. And then if you don't control that in your organization, you can always start with your own leadership style. Take the four factors, internalize them, think about what you could be doing differently or better to really earn those components with your teams. And I would say if you like our conversation, you know, please check out the book, The Four Factors of Trust, and also the website, fourfactorsoftrust.com. Thank you so much for having us. 
Thank you for listening. Aviv always encourages his clients to identify the one or two ideas they can move forward into action immediately. What will you capture and apply today? You can always begin with a small action and then build momentum over time. When you move forward from an idea to action, you get immediate ROI, return on the time you invested, and return of learning. And then the learning cycle builds the success propulsion. One more thing. You can reach Aviv directly by phone and email to discover how he can help you create a new future for your business and organization. Creating your new future can begin today.